I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Today, we have another really special guest with us. Dr. Narek is the only full-time board-certified veterinary neurologist in the state of Alabama. She earned her veterinary degree at Iowa State and went on to do a neurology residency at Auburn. That's where I met Dr. Narek for the first time. After completing her residency, Dr. Narek served as neurology faculty at the University of Tennessee and at Auburn University. Her clinical interests include neurosurgery, and she has expertise in Chiari-like malformation and neuropathic pain. So, Dr. Narek, I think that neurology is one of those areas that a lot of people in general practice get really intimidated and nervous about. Could we start the podcast off by reviewing a basic neurologic exam in a general practice setting? Yes. First of all, some things that should be thrown into a typical physical exam, regardless of why the animal is there, is to quickly check menace responses and also proprioceptive positioning, which is where you flip the paws over when they should write themselves. And the reason for that is that a quick proprioceptive test very um, thoroughly examines the sensory and motor components of the nerves, the peripheral nerves. It also assesses the spinal cord, the brainstem, the cerebellum, and the forebrain. So just a quick test of that could identify if there may be an issue. And then the menace responses, uh, looking into vision. We have a lot of people that are in like pre-vet or veterinary school and might not know. Would you just quickly define what a menace response is and what sure. uh, kind of what the definition proprioception is? Yes. Yeah, so proprioception is knowing without like having to think about it. It's the body's understanding of where limbs are in space. Primarily, it's a unconscious effort. One does not have to think about it much, but the nervous system is responsible for that. Um, and then a menace response is a learned behavior that puppies and kittens will have figured out by the time they're about four months old. This is to blink or shy away from a menacing gesture or movement. And so it's a quick way to assess vision in an animal, as well as the appropriate response to, to what they're seeing. So incorporating both proprioceptive response tests and menace response is super important in a general examination. Are there any other things that we need to be sure that we hit on in a, in a general, say, wellness exam? I think um, just observing the animal's behavior and mentation. So, you know, as they're like hanging out with you in the exam room, make sure that they're behaving appropriately for the situation. Make sure that they're awake and responsive like they should be. So I think a lot of it is going to depend on what is wrong with the animals. So if we're worried about like a seizure case, then I need to know also about the animal's behavior at home, especially. Is it neurologically normal or are they having episodes of like wandering, disorientation, stuff like that is really important for me to know. But when it comes on to like a hands-on exam, I think doing the best to what we call provide a neuroanatomic localization is really important. 
And so an animal who may be having some weakness or maybe is paralyzed in its back legs, it's really important if you go ahead and do all of their reflexes also, because that's going to give me an idea of actually where in the spinal cord the, the problem is. Just the more information that anybody can provide for me is best. I think at the very least, just make sure you have put your hands on the animal. Um, because you mentioned earlier that a lot of people maybe are nervous or afraid of neurology. And it's not uncommon for me to receive referrals where maybe it's just mentioned that the animal is neurologically abnormal or they think it is. But no actual exam has been performed. Hmm. So, yeah, hmm. exactly. Huh, okay. is what I say yeah. to that, too. <laughs> so, um, so in those cases, it's kind of like the owner has called the primary vet and said something's wrong. And they said, well, let's go on to the neurologist. I, I feel very insecure about that. Or Yeah. 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 I think okay. a lot of people are, are just really afraid of neurology. Maybe hmm. they're afraid that what they might do could further endanger the patient. I don't know. But there is a yeah. lot of, I see a lot of freak out like, oh, I don't know what this is. Send it to the neurologist. <laughs> yeah. I'll just say as, as someone who's worked in general practice for a long time now, that information is not surprising to me uh, at all. I mean, I I think as far as my anxiety levels go, neurologic cases um, are, are quite up there on my scale of panic. <laughs> well, just because uh, so many of the neurologic things that we see are so dramatic and severe from the the uh, dog with a herniated disc that's down completely and constantly screaming in pain to the uh, the dog that comes in or the cat that comes in in status epilepticus, which is just uncontrolled repeated seizures. I mean, really in general practice, because we don't see those like every single day. I mean, it, it does sort of... <laughs> I mean, I imagine people kind of like running around with their hands in the air, you know, like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? That's yeah. what I imagine also. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> and I, I, I've, I've been one of those people uh, for sure. So, <laughs> You know, as part of my training and in my internship in residency, you know, you get exposed to a lot of that stuff. And so I just go into it's almost like a military training. Like I see that first rule for me is don't freak out. Okay. Second rule is there's no running in the hospital. <laughs> so <laughs> we just calmly <laughs> we just calmly deal with the situation as it presents itself. And and I think a lot of that is just exposure, you know, in mm -hmm. in my training. From owner standpoint, I'm sure that they're also very panicked and that can kind of you know, you, you have a mm -hmm. pet that's one day normal and the next day that are very uh, not normal anymore. <laughs> And they can probably come in, be super panicked, and set sometimes set the doctors off too in the staff. So oh, yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, I can see that that being a, a huge issue. <laughs> I yeah. think so too, yeah. Just the number of times that I've uh, come in and seen on the schedule, like probable euthanasia appointment, owner thinks dog has had stroke. And I'm like, oh, I feel like that's probably going to be a vestibular episode, you know, because those look scary. Vestibular yeah. episodes are frightening for owners to experience. So I I, I agree with you 100%, JJ. I think the general public seems to kind of go from there's a neurologic abnormality straight to my dog is going to have to die today, you know, mm -hmm. um, that, that does kind of ratchet up the anxiety of everybody involved. Yeah. yeah. And I think for a lot of people, um, 
the idea that there are veterinary neurologists is probably a new idea. Mm, um, so maybe not knowing that there's people like me out there that can help. Yeah. I've got a relative that's got a dog that's going through some, some issues with, uh, rear end paralysis and her veterinarian oh. had recommended an MRI and she was like, uh, what now you, you do that for dogs? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Like, yeah, absolutely. Of course. Of course we do. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's, uh, I don't think that's very uncommon at all that the general public does not realize that, you know, dogs get more than vaccines. So yeah. Hopefully this will help get the word out that there are other options as well. I hope so too. What I tell clients is that like, even in the scariest looking times, there's going to be a treatment for almost everything that I see. So there's always going to be options. Yeah. Again, do your best to do a full neurologic exam, but you also have to take the situation into consideration. If you're dealing with like a very aggressive animal, Hmm. obviously it's better for you to to keep yourself safe than to like do all the the tests that are required in a neuro exam so it's situation dependent and and i take my own advice too in that regard especially with cats who there may be you know a very select available kitty minutes yeah i pick and choose (laughs) what i think is going to be the most important information for me to grab if you have an aggressive animal that's also displaying some neurologic symptoms I'm just kind of curious how often the the rabies panic button happens. Oh, that's a that great question. Be, that yeah. would be my first like, I don't like that. Rabies is always in the back of my mind. Any of my patients could be rabid simply because they're neurologic. So I always wear gloves on every exam. I've only seen one real life case of rabies. And that was when I was in Grenada, because I, I do go down to Grenada uh, twice a year for teaching, and then I consult with the clinicians there. And while I was there one time, they did have a rabid animal, and his exam was observation only. Mm-hmm. And putting together with the history um, and looking back at vaccine records, we were quite sure that he was rabid, and uh, he ended up being euthanized and submitted for testing, and it was confirmed. Mm. yikes yeah rabies yeah, it is was so scary the scariest thing i've ever seen so yeah it's always in the back of my head <laughs> <laughs> yep. scared noise for real yeah <laughs> yeah well so what about in your referral practice can you walk us through how you approach a neurologic examination when a patient is referred to you so um i always have the nurses bring the patient back into like our treatment area that's for a couple of reasons. One is that I think it's actually been documented that most patients behave better away from their parents. And number two is that the neurologic exam, it's kind of a physical endeavor. And so it's a little weird for owners to see me like slinging their dog or cat around and, you know, what looks like wrestling with it on the floor. So I like to keep those things behind closed doors. But once the patient does come back, I will either have my nurse um, just let them around our little consultation area as they're relaying the history to me. Or if it's like a well-behaved animal, then we'll actually get a leash on it and take it to what I call our little runway where I can do a gait evaluation. And at the same time, I'm also keeping in mind the patient's mentation, their behavior, and having a look at their posture. And so that's all kind of my observational part of the exam. 
And then once I start diving into the exam, after I've done a full physical, I will start with a cranial nerve evaluation, and then I move on to proprioceptive testing. So as many postural reactions as it takes for me to make my mind up about what I'm seeing. I at least try to do proprioceptive positioning and hopping, and then I'll do the others, such as hemi walking or wheelbarrowing, etc. if I need to like further figure out what I'm seeing. And then I move on to reflex testing, where I'll get my little reflex hammer out and do my myotatic and flexor withdrawal reflexes, and then finish up uh, my exam with palpation of the head and spine which is sort of our way of asking an animal if they're painful or not. And that's it. Well, does it sound so scary? No, it's it's really not. It's very methodical. It's, um, you know, the approach should be just like what any approach to a physical exam. As long as you make sure that you're hitting all the components, then you're going to get everything done. So, Dr. Narek, what are the most important things a general practitioner can do to make neurology referrals more successful. So I, I I did touch on this earlier, but seeing the animal in person and doing an exam is really important. I just mentioned that because sometimes they don't. Number two is, you know, listing all the things that you've tried and were either successful or unsuccessful. That really helps. Providing diagnostic workup information like any lab work or radiographs that you've done, um, all that stuff really does help me out. You know, never be afraid to hop on the phone and, and chat with me about a case before you send it or email me videos, stuff like that. Basically, the more information that I have, the better. So uh, I almost hesitate to ask this question because we were just talking about how, you know, people are intimidated maybe by neurology and we hope that they don't feel that way. But <laughs> what are some common mistakes you see general practitioners making uh, with neurology cases? Honestly, I'm not seeing a ton of mistakes. Oh, good. Everybody's approaches to neuro cases are really, they're doing a good job. The biggest mistake is, again, when they haven't seen the animal and they're trying to refer it to me, especially if they're wanting like an emergency or an urgent referral. You have to see the animal first. But I think that everybody's approaches to like medical management for presumptive disc disease are uh, actually quite good. A lot of people ask me, should I use an NSAID or should I use a steroid? And the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not both at the same time, right. probably. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely not both at the same time. But I think an anti-inflammatory is an important component to that management approach. And which one you use is personal preference. My personal preference is a steroid, but hmm. You know, I think if you asked a bunch of neurologists, you get half of us saying NSAID and half of us saying, saying steroid. And it just depends on how we were trained. If I could be a little more specific about the actual referral process, a real common mistake that I'm seeing people make, um, like when they're sending records, is for whatever reason, the component of the records that I get is more like a listing of medications. And maybe there's a diagnosis sprinkled in there, but the actual doctor's notes aren't included. And I think that that might be a software issue, or maybe they just weren't documenting what they did. That, I think, has been a recent frustration of mine. Yeah, I can see how that would be frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> I think oh. that's, that's, that's clinic everywhere. I don't know how many records I get on the daily that I'm like, 
Thank you for letting me know that they bought some prevention. But mm-hmm. uh, um, what did y'all do to the dog that we have here that's limping? What, exactly. What? Yes. Help? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, 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 oh. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, so uh, let's talk. Let's talk about let's talk about medical records for just a second. Sure. Oh, boy. You need a hand up on that soapbox? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, okay, now, I'm not trying to, it is not my intention to single anybody out or make anybody feel, you know, belittled or anything like that. It, I just want to say that first. But so, in my relief practice, there's some clinics I work at more, but I actually go a lot of places in Alabama, okay? So, I have seen all sorts of setups with regard to medical records. Before I was in relief practice, I uh, worked in a general practice, but I took a lot of dentistry referrals. So I got a lot of notes that way that I needed to review. And then when I worked ER medicine, then I would a lot of the time have notes to review from those cases. Okay, so I've, I've had the opportunity to see a lot of notes. And I worry that it is not so much a software issue as a not writing notes at all issue in some cases. Not all cases, but but in some cases I it have is. that suspicion as well. Yeah. And I just like to remind people that that's like not legal. Correct. You need to have not notes okay. about every patient. There are a lot of things in veterinary medicine that I'm passionate about, but making medical notes is definitely up there towards the top of the list because well, number 1, I can't remember everything myself across time so i try to be as specific as possible just to help me out because sometimes they'll be like this animal is here and everybody on the staff knows who it is and i'm like i don't remember anything about seeing this patient before (laughs) but luckily i have my notes there where i've made like you know uh like a dissertation about what i saw and i'm like yeah because that's the level of um detail that i personally need to be able to remember all the things about the case. I've worked at places before where people are very excited that I make very detailed notes, and I've worked at places before where people were not very excited for some reason that I make detailed notes. I'm not saying that everyone has to make the level of notes that I do or be as neurotic about notes as I am. I understand that's not for everybody. But there needs to be some notes at all. A lot of the time when I do call and ask another veterinarian, like, you know, you only sent over like basically a summary of what they've purchased over the past seven years or something. I need the actual notes. Like, what were you seeing in the mouth when you did dentistry? I need the radiographs that you took. I need those kinds of things. And and a lot of the time, the answer I get back is we sent you everything we have. No, there aren't any notes. And I'm just like, what? How, like, how is that <laughs> yeah. a thing? We won't make this a medical note focused episode, but, uh, yeah. but I, but clearly, <laughs> clearly I'm still traumatized. And I, th- I think, I do think that there's a software issue too with some record okay. keeping software because it'll even say like there's a document embedded in this list of medications that I'm seeing. Oh, but it's a file that I can't access on this sheet of paper that I have. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, yeah. To all of the veterinarians and maybe the CSRs who are out there, the client service representatives, actually providing those notated notated notes, that's redundant, but that's what I mean. That's way more helpful than like, 
this dog got heart guard last month. Or, right. You know, yeah. <laughs> JJ, as a, a client service representative and having been a technician before, too, do you have any recommendations for how clinics can make sure that they're getting all of the available information to the specialist accurately? I think making sure that whoever's responsible for sending the records knows how to do it. Because, I mean, I've run into yep. that as being a big Step issue. One. Yeah. Because <laughs> a lot of times, reception, customer service rep, however you want to call, us at the front desk. A lot of people will have like a certain amount of knowledge of the software, but not enough to know how to, there's a, I mean, in Avamark, there's a lot of little boxes you can check for what you want to send. And if you don't have the right one checked, they're not going to get the doctor's notes or they're not going to get the medical condition or they're not going to get the lab results. And we have ours kind of down to a science, but I know there's times where I've called other places and I'm like, I need records and radiographs. Oh, I don't know how to send radiographs. I'm like, can you put me in touch with someone who does maybe? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, knowing how the software works and knowing what to send. And if you don't, please pass it along to someone else because I mean, I've run into that brick wall too, where they're like, oh, well, I I just don't know how to do it. I'm like, technician maybe, or, you know, pass it along. Don't just... Say, that's it. Sorry. Bye. Because <laughs> that's not going to help anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Dr. Knight, let's talk about some uh, neurology myths that we can address. I don't know of a ton off the top of my head. Okay. <laughs> but let me just say, because this was brought up earlier, for whatever reason, whenever anything neurologic happens to animals, people immediately go to, oh my gosh, my animals had a stroke. And Although strokes do happen in dogs and cats, it's not the number one cause of veterinary issues. So I I don't know why that is. I guess just because maybe that's one of the more common severe things that we see in human beings. Um, and so they can relate to that. But that is something that I see quite a bit. And I've just, I've always kind of wondered about that. I agree. I think it's the average layperson has shockingly little medical training. But a stroke, they kind of know what that is from television, from family members that have had them. And I think that's what they jump to because that's just what that's just kind of the terminology that they know. So it can be a little difficult to try to present my list of differentials to people like that. And then the other (laughs) thing that happens, this isn't a myth, but this is something that does happen, is that people will like cling on to something that I've said, even though I'm just tossing out possibilities. Okay. And then, then they want to know every single thing about that. And I'm like, but wait, we haven't made that diagnosis yet. (laughs) You know, I'm just going through possibilities with you. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I don't know what kind of myths out there have you guys heard about neurology? Oh, um, okay. Yeah, we can go through them. Uh, I will just say like, um, it's so funny that you mentioned, wanting to know everything about a differential diagnosis before like the actual diagnosis has been made. I think it's an anxiety response and one that I do because I'm seeing a neurologist right now, a human neurologist for some issues that I'm having. And I did the same thing to, to my neurologist. He was like, I really think that it's this, this is my top differential, but there's other things that could be like this, 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 and this. And so after he said, you know, top differential, I had like my list of questions, you know, like uh, I'm very detail oriented. So I was like, 
I want to know this and I want to know this and this and this. And he was like, he actually refused to answer any questions that I had at all, at all, until I had a a diagnosis. And it made me infuriated. But then later I was like, shit, I'm doing the same thing that people do to us. (laughs) You totally were. Yeah. And I think you're right that, and a lot of people I think are asking me that because once again, they're like, is this all even worth it? And Mm, that's why my answer is, you know, pretty much no matter what we find, there's going to be a treatment option out there or multiple treatment options. So, but first we need to make a diagnosis and then I can talk to you about prognosis, timeline, treatment, all that. So I think that is a a good myth, you know, just basically the myth that any sort of a, a neurologic issue going on with your dog means certain death and we should just throw in the towel. Certainly in veterinary medicine, we we do have to, you know, be realistic that unfortunately not everyone has uh, the resources to do the ultimate gold star treatment for every single case, you know. Yep. And, and in fact, when, you know, when I don't have any specific numbers, but I know that the amount of savings that the average person, say, in, in um, the U.S. has People look at that and it's always shockingly low. So I always think, you know, if we're running into an animal emergency like a neurologic issue, you know, this is going to be something that cost is going to outpace what, you know, what the average person has in their savings account. And so then I I do always kind of worry about that. And I know clients do, too. But you're absolutely right. Like there is almost always something that we can do. The question is going to be, is it attainable for the owner? I yep. think. Yep. Um, on the topic of preventative medications, yeah. I, I do get asked a lot of questions about, is this particular product known to cause seizures or neurologic abnormalities? Oh, mm-hmm. That's a good one. And to be honest with you, I'm not up on all the different products that are out there. I, I don't even, because they come out with new ones all the time. And as you know, a specialist who's not prescribing those medications, it's difficult for me to, to keep up with. But What I will say is that in most of the cases where this has been a question that's asked of me, um, the the uh, evidence is anecdotal at best. So, yeah, I would say trust your family veterinarian on guidance for which products to to use. Don't ask your neurologist who doesn't know what they are. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. So. This was sort of talked about earlier, but I think it's a myth that neurology is hard. Okay. It's actually very logical. It's deductive reasoning. It's like doing a puzzle, I think, in terms of like neuroanatomic localization, which is the meat of what we do. I think that if you can perform a complete neurologic exam and you keep in mind the functional components of the nervous system, then you can figure out where the problem is easily. And and I really enjoy that kind of thing and that's that's why I'm a neurologist. I wonder why. I mean, so I have not done a poll, okay, but just in my day-to-day experience with other veterinarians over the past, you know, decade, I wonder why it is so common for people to be intimidated by neurology if it is very straightforward. You know, like is I it just makes me wonder is there maybe some sort of difference in the way that it's taught or maybe the neurologists themselves that are teaching it are really (laughs) 
intimidating or something. Like, yeah. I, don't know. I, think, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know what it is either. But, you know, I've been in veterinary academia for 15 years now. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I still dip my toe in it uh, teaching in Grenada. I try to make it as approachable and practical as possible. I know that there are colleagues of mine who, uh, for lack of a better word, are just, and I'm not trying to make a pun, I think that some people are too cerebral and um, maybe intimidating to students uh, just because they exist in this ivory tower, you know, up above everybody. And that, that kind of is an attitude in academia. I try to bring it to real life. And I think ultimately my practical approach to things is why I ended up in private practice anyway. Hmm. Yeah. I also think, you know, people are fascinated with the brain and the rest of the nervous system. And maybe it's just like a magical thing that, that can't be approached or I, I don't know what it is, but there is definitely yeah. a fear of neurology. Well, I can relate kind of my personal experience in, well, even in working ER and then having the experience of knowing that whatever treatments that I did or, or interventions that I took the the neurologist was going to be taking over in a couple of days and it did make me feel nervous that i was going to make a mistake maybe with neurology we feel like there is so much riding on every little decision that we make you know for me that's what makes it stressful to handle a neurology case is that i sort of had this idea that there's probably one right thing that I can do. And what if I don't do that one right thing, you know, and uh, um, oh, my God, like that somebody else is going to be looking at it. And what if I go too far beyond what I, you know, beyond what my station is, you know, that sort of a thing. And what if I don't do enough? And what if I do too much? What if I mess up the ability for the neurologist to be able to do certain tests, you know, and things like that. So that's an anxiety that I have for sure. And so I wonder if partly that could be it, just the fear that you're going to do something that's going to forever impact our ability to, to help the patient and that you make the wrong decision. I would say that you're probably not going to do that. Okay. <laughs> Thankfully, um, a lot of things are pretty forgiving. I do think, though, that to all the people who are out there, Trying your best to avoid steroids is going to make your neurologist happy. Okay. And that's because, like, let's say we're dealing with an inflammatory process like a meningoencephalitis of unknown etiology, all those little acronym things. Will you just real quick explain what that is that you just said? Because I, I think our vet student's eyes just glazed over a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is a category of basically... What we think is autoimmune uh, inflammatory disease of the central nervous system. And going through the different diseases, you're going to find a lot of acronyms. And so things like GME or NME, NLE, SRMA, these are all kind of under this category of autoimmune inflammation of the central nervous system. And so now I'm not saying that you should avoid steroids if it's like, you give steroids or the animal dies. Okay. Like in that case, of course, you want to err on the side of saving the animal's life. But okay. if you can avoid steroids and you know that the animal is going to be moving forward with the workup, which may include like a spinal tap in the case of these inflammatory cases, steroids can make a tap 
look normal because basically mm-hmm. they're treating the problem. And so then in that case, we may not be able to identify the actual disease process. If the owners are for sure not going to move forward with like a referral and a specialist workup, or again, if it's steroid or death, then of course use the steroids. But I think that would be the biggest problem that I could identify that might make me a little irritated. Okay. Other, yeah. Otherwise, I mean, do your best. We're, we're, I'm not going to hold you, like hold your nose to anything for doing your best to try and help an animal. Well, I think that's helpful for people to know. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So we've talked a little bit about sort of when we would reach for steroids. And you mentioned that you prefer steroid use over like an NSAID, but but you could use either or for like a a case where you really think that intervertebral disc disease is the is the top differential. Yeah. Is that really the only time that you're going to reach for steroids first then? I use steroids like water. (laughs) And it's kind of a joke among specialists that neurologists only need two drugs, and that's phenobarb and steroids, (laughs) which, I mean, it's it's broader than that, but that that is like a running joke. So I use steroids, of course, if I'm dealing with one of these autoimmune issues. Mm -hmm. I'll also use them at lower doses if I'm dealing with maybe an infectious central nervous system issue because, you know, the inflammatory component is wreaking a lot of havoc. Yeah. So while we use an antimicrobial to go after the actual pathogen, we also need to settle down the immune system response. I use them when I'm suspicious of a tumor because a lot of tumors will incite local inflammation. I use them if I'm suspicious of like cerebral edema because steroids will help draw out that edema fluid. I use them when I am dealing with like anything having to do with CSF disruption. So like hydrocephalus or a Chiari-like malformation, because steroids are also known to reduce uh, CSF production and so can help out with that. So, I mean, there's like thousands of situations that I'm using steroids for. It sounds like at the referral level, steroids are an incredibly useful tool, but the issue comes in when maybe we in general practice start them kind of too early, as in we haven't gotten a firm diagnosis yet and they're already started. but So it, they can kind of inhibit our ability to get a diagnosis, but on the flip side are helpful in, in a wide variety of neurologic situations. Is that, am I hearing you right? Yep, that's correct. And again, okay. if if you're trying your best to manage things conservatively, I mean, that's what the client wants. Um, I think that's totally cool. And if it comes down to, well, now we're going to move forward with a workup. And if they're on steroids, you know, that's fine. I just have to take that into consideration when I'm trying to collect all my evidence, like MRI findings, uh, CSF findings, all of that. What I have found to be helpful in general practice is, honestly, I mean, and some people might think this is a little bit of a cop out in a way, but when I have a complex neurologic presentation and I'm contemplating steroid use in the patient, I go ahead right off the bat and say, this sort of a problem really needs higher level diagnostics than I have available in general practice here. You really should see a neurologist to get a firm diagnosis. And here's how you can go about that. And I'm in a privileged situation with now one right up the street because... (laughs) When that wasn't the case, uh, so say before it was like a drive to Auburn, right? Right, or Nashville. So many people 
will be like, I'm not doing that. But if it's in Huntsville, like right up the road, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll do that. So I, I recognize that I'm speaking from a position of <laughs> of like practice privilege here, but but I always talk about the neurologist first and before I start steroids, tell the owner, if we go this route without doing tests, I could be impacting the ability of the neurologist to get accurate results later. The one situation that I run into that's a little bit frustrating is when I'm talking to the owners about these things and they're like, nope, not going to the neurologist, super don't want to, wouldn't even think about that. How dare you suggest that a pet should ever see a neurologist, you crazy person, because I get that a lot. Yeah. And uh, then I'm like, okay, we're going to do this. And and then later they come back and say, now, why don't we know for sure what's going on? And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, we've been over this. So anyway, uh, so then I offer it again. Occasionally, people will then later accept a neurology referral uh, after we've already kind of Tried done a bunch best. of things yep. that I wouldn't have done, yep. you know, <laughs> had they told me like up front. Yeah, yeah, we do want to go. We yeah. do want to go. I think, you know. I th- Yeah, I mean, I see that a lot and I can read between the lines and figure that kind of thing out. So I try to be a judgment free zone. One thing I will be judgy about, though, is when steroids are being used, Mm -hmm. don't forget appropriate dosing. And I Ah. think what's something that's really important is remembering that dexamethasone is seven times more potent than prednisone and so needs to be appropriately dosed, uh, adjusted down a little bit. Because I get to deal with the after effects, like the blowout diarrhea on my patient who I just did back surgery on. So one thing about that that's frustrating is that in many of the published formularies, the doses of steroids in those are still insane. You're right. They are. And I don't know how, like, is that a fixable thing? Uh, I would hope. (laughs) I I think it comes down to just remembering what you've been taught and Unfortunately, we can't believe everything that we read. I mean, yeah, some of the studies that are referenced in those formularies are quite old, and I would mm-hmm. say um, no longer relevant. Gotcha. Yeah. Dr. Nerick, do you feel comfortable sharing dose information, or is it too specific to get into on a podcast? I'm comfortable. I have made the mistake of calling my anti-inflammatory dosage low-dose steroids, Because to me it is. But when I'm lecturing about this to students, I'm forgetting that they're also being taught actual low dose, which is like physiologic steroids for like Addison's disease. Gotcha. So in my eyes, low dose steroid is the anti-inflammatory dose, which for dogs is about a mg per kg per day. Of prednisolone? Prednisone. Yeah, sorry. Thanks. And for cats, basically we double that. And for immunosuppressive purposes, we're starting at two mg per kg per day for prednisone in dogs. And in cats, when that's needed, which I hardly ever see cats with autoimmune issues in my practice, but again, that dose is doubled. Gotcha. And those doses can be divided. They can be given once a day, however you fancy to do it. And then if dexamethasone is being used, we need to reduce that by a crap ton. By a factor <laughs> of seven. Or to make your math easier, just uh, by a factor of 10, and then you just yeah. move the decimal point. Uh, say an animal needs five milligrams of prednisone, 
uh, what we're looking at is 0.5 milligrams of dexamethasone. That's correct. (laughs) That's super useful. So like addressing the formulary issue, sometimes I forget stuff and I have to go back and look it up. And then I'm like, what in the hell? Like, why is the formulary (laughs) saying like, uh, on, on, if you just look up prednisone and like plum, okay, Mm -hmm. we'll call plum out. It's like some outrageous thing or something crazy where you're like, why would you ever need to know it's that high? Like, what are you just aiming for an ulcer right off the bat or no? (laughs) If the publishers of uh, veterinary formularies are listening to this podcast, please adjust your adjust your dosing. Yeah, (laughs) that would be great. You know, what's neat that I've seen in several vet schools that I've um, been at is that a lot of those places will publish their own formulary. Based on their clinical pharmacologist's advice. Some of those can be very useful. That's awesome. Yeah. Does Auburn have a, a published formulary? I mean, if you just buy Don Booth's book, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I haven't, you're right. I haven't seen the one like that at Auburn um, when I was there. But when I was at University of Tennessee, they had one. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure SGU down in Grenada is working on one, too. I know I've seen others. So, yeah, but at Auburn, I mean, Dr. Booth is just the queen of pharmacology. Right. So you should just buy her book. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's true. So, Dr. Narek, what are some of the weirdest neurology cases that you've seen? Okay, so I mentioned that rabies case uh, in Grenada. That was certainly a standout. I hope I never see anything like that again. I Also, this wasn't my case, but... In residency, I helped with the workup for my resident mate's case because she was in surgery at the time. It was a little dog who had a history of an eye injury, then subsequently became neurologic. And I can't remember the constellation of signs in this dog, but came in for a workup. MRI looked very gnarly, um, like inflammatory process everywhere, most likely. There was also, we could see damage to the particular eye that was involved. And when I did the spinal tap for my colleague, um, who again was not available to do it because she was in surgery, I pulled out Frank Puss. Oh. Hmm. Usually spinal fluid should be clear, colorless. This was like, it looked like panicure. Oh, whoa. Like a thick yellow substance coming out. and. The eye issue was a penetrating foreign body that developed local bacterial inflammation and infection. And then it was extending into the brain. Oh, my God. That patient didn't didn't make it. Oh, no. That was very unusual because in most cases in dogs and cats, we are not dealing with bacterial inflammation in the brain. That's very different than uh, a lot of livestock can have that issue. But not in our dogs and cats. Hmm. Do you recall what created the wound? I don't remember. Okay. I mean, That's this is the best, G. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things don't go in the eye. Just, that's, no, just not, that's a crazy. That's bad. Nothing goes in there. <laughs> you mentioned a constellation of symptoms, and that's one of those uh, terms that I just love because I, I think that's just such a cool way. It's a constellation of <laughs> Of symptoms. It's very, uh, very spacey. I like yeah. it. I like I'm it. also a space nerd, so I dig <laughs> yeah. it. And I can't, like, I'm so thrilled that I ended up in Huntsville. Oh, yeah. 
I love the space program. I have always been fascinated with Saturn V, and now I get to drive by it all the time. <laughs> so, Dr. Nerick, what are some other crazy cases you've seen? And so this is another unusual case of a bacterial problem in the brain. This was a cat who ended up having a bilateral otitis media with an extensional otogenic abscess. So meaning the abscess burst from her middle ear and extended itself into the brain. And then on top of that, she also had a pituitary tumor. Oh, no. <laughs> Was the pituitary tumor incidental or yeah. related? Incidental. Just incidental, yep. just for fun. Yep. Okay. Those darn collectors. I know. <laughs> Cats just collect problems. Yes, they do. She ended up having radiation therapy down at Auburn, and we cleared up her abscess, and she's actually doing fantastic. So was the radiation... For the, the tumor. The tumor, yeah. No, I, I cleared up the abscess first, and then this, gotcha. was, this of course, was during times of COVID. So I got the oh. abscess cleared up and then she was supposed to go have her appointment. But then the service, the, the radiation oncology service had to close down because people mm. got infected with COVID. Oh, no. So then she ended up being pushed off even later. But she ultimately got her abscess cleared up and her tumor nuked and she's doing great. So does she have like acromegaly or something? Or She didn't. Um, unusually. Huh. Endocrinologically, she was normal. No diabetes. Interesting. So, I mean, I'm guessing they don't go in and biopsy that. We just kind of just treat it. Yeah. Gotcha. On that note, um, I did just recently help out with um, diagnosing a pituitary macroadenoma in a cat who is acromegalic and has insulin-resistant diabetes mellitus. Mm -hmm. And he's going to go out to... There's a group at Washington State that is doing hypophysectomies. So that means a surgical removal of the tumor. And they have a great team. They have a surgeon, like a general surgeon, a neurologist, and a critical care, a, a criticalist who's also got her PhD in endocrinology. And so hmm. they have a really neat team to manage those cases. And he actually had features of acromegaly which I'd never seen in real life before. He had kind of a broadened nose and his teeth were normal space, but then he had one giant foot. <laughs> it was really interesting. <laughs> That's awesome. It's always, I think, impressive to me and, and good to remind myself that there are clients that will travel to other states with their pet to get yeah. them the best care. This is actually my second case that has gone out to Washington State for that group. I think in general practice, it's really, really easy to assume that most owners or even all owners want the bare minimum care because sometimes the owners that do want the bare minimum care scream at you if you suggest any other thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously, sometimes you get kind of like traumatized by that and, and then think like, well, shit, if I'm going to get yelled at every time I suggest these things, then I'm not doing it anymore. You know, yeah. maybe not even consciously, you know, maybe yep. even subconsciously. But so I think that's so good to remind ourselves, like, look, some people will get on a plane with their cat and travel someplace else to have brain surgery. Yep. One of the difficult things I think about general practice is that we have clients that are willing to board a plane and, and go anywhere in the world and clients that won't. I mean, to be frank, do anything. And then everywhere in between, yeah. that makes it really 
it's tough. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's stressful sometimes. Yeah, I'm glad Man. that I don't have to deal with that particular aspect of practice. Yeah, because if they're coming to see you, then they're already on board with doing a lot of stuff. They're at yeah. least on board to come see me and, and yeah. have another evaluation. Um, a lot yeah. of times the estimates for our workups or procedures um, are a little bit mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. And so to kind of circle back around to things that family veterinarians can do, I think preparing the clients who are willing to go for a referral um, for like how much time might be involved, especially if they're going to a university that is not typically just a day trip. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to (laughs) be a lot involved. Um, Now for when they come to see me, I try to make everything happen same day if we can. And if my schedule allows for it, but it's easier if they've already been prepared for how much it's going to cost and um, what kinds of things might happen. And we can't get into really specific costs, especially just because of, you know, just even geographic differences. But I think it's fair to say preparing owners for cost in the thousands of dollars and not the hundreds of dollars is reasonable. Do you agree? Yes, I agree. You know, unfortunately, our best diagnostic tools, like an MRI or sometimes a CAT scan, those things are expensive machines. They're actually human quality machines in most cases. And um, it does take a a good deal of upkeep and overhead to keep them running. So we have to charge appropriately. Um, Another really wild case that I had that I just thought of, it's the only time that I found myself in emergency brain surgery. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. That's never a thing that you want to be doing. Mm -mm. For whatever reason, I'm talking about all these bacterial issues, but I think it's because they're so unique and I'm never going to forget them. This was a little dog who um at six months of age she was adopted and she was found to have a scar on like basically where her forehead would be in a dog Hmm. and they thought it was probably a bite wound from a litter mate she went on to do just fine for the next years and then at about a year and a half of age started circling i think she um had seizures and then They kind of managed it conservatively for a while until she started really um, compulsively circling and her mentation started to decrease. So she was acting very lethargic, not very responsive. So they brought her in and we did do an MRI. And this was when I was in academia. So this takes a while because the student gets the case. We talk about it. We take like an hour to do an exam and talk about differentials and stuff. We go back to the clients and present the plan. Then we have to get on the list for anesthesia and radiologic procedures. The animal finally makes it to MRI later in the afternoon where we see um, a suspected abscess that has grown to the point where it's basically entrapping a lateral ventricle. And Mm -hmm. so the dog's acute decline was because of an obstructive hydrocephalus. And so now it's like three, four o'clock. And I was like, we have to get this dog into surgery now because she's like circling the drain. Yeah. And so I ended up with my resident and the student in the OR at like, we were starting this brain surgery case at like five o'clock at night (laughs) and (laughs) got in there and removed the abscess in its entirety, decompressed that ventricle, and the dog did great. We actually wrote her up because. Oh, wow. It was the only report that we could find of an anaerobe causing a brain abscess in a dog. 
Hmm. And you guys felt like it was related to that little scar yeah. when, that so she from had, a puppy. Yep. Huh. She had been bit. And then this thing was just very slowly developing and, you know, being dealt with by the brain and, until it just reached a point where it obstructed that ventricle. And that's when it became an emergency issue for her. And so for our um, pre-vet and veterinary students, we're talking about basically an abscess that gradually got so big that it squished the brain. Squished the brain and more importantly, squished the uh, the pathway for spinal fluid. The thing about spinal fluid is that it's consistently made no matter if the pathway is free or not. So it's going to keep making itself and the dilation of the pathway that it's supposed to go through can happen very suddenly. And it's that pressure change within the skull that that made it a problem. Wow. That is a crazy case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I remember I got home later that night and my husband, who was then, uh, we were just dating. He was like, oh, how's your night going? And I was like, you're never going to believe what I just got home from. <laughs> and I was like, how's your night? And he's like, oh, I went to a party with some friends. And I was like, right. well, I was having a different kind of party. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just had my hands inside of the skull, you know, fixing the brain. No big deal. (laughs) Routine. (laughs) Any other crazy cases, Dr. Neric, that you want to highlight? I don't think they're crazy to me because it's relatively routine. But I just am always amazed at like little dachshunds who blow out discs and are completely paralyzed. And after having surgery, just seeing them walk again normally brings so much joy to my life. And, you know, I see a lot of sad cases on neurology, but it's those little guys who really keep it going for me and keep it to be very rewarding. That's awesome. Is your favorite type of case the back cases? I think they're my favorites. Um, Surgery goes well. The cool thing as a neurologist is I get to do medical and surgical cases. Yeah. And I tend to like the surgical ones better, but it's like I said, it's just so rewarding to help those little guys out. And, you know, their owners are, of course, always very grateful. Yeah. So it's it's the things like that that I can actually help and permanently make better that really keep me going. Well, Dr. Neric, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. We really enjoyed having you today. Yes, thank you. Before we sign off, we'd like everyone to know that we've created a listener poll. We've created the poll to help us understand our audience better and to bring you the best content possible. If you wouldn't mind filling out the poll, we would really appreciate it. And you'll find the links to the poll on our social media accounts. If you have stories, questions, or anything else you'd like for us to read, send them via email to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. It's at introverts. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.